0: This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening.
1: Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. In our series, we've profiled the recovery stories of two dozen addicts. But none more improbable than that of my guest today, Freddie Negretti. Freddie was orphaned at two and a half years of age when his parents, both gang members, went to prison for armed robbery and manslaughter. He went on to become a convicted felon and later began a successful career in Hollywood while struggling the whole time with heroin addiction. Today, we'll talk about Freddie's long journey from gang member on the streets of LA to Hollywood studio artist and Smile Now, Cry Later, the autobiography he co-wrote with his close friend, Steve Jones. So, Freddie, welcome.
2: Thank you. It's good to be here.
1: Okay. So, it seems that you're in a good place today, but let's start off at the very beginning. Your your life just had a rough start to it. So, let's start with your childhood. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I ended up like a ward of the court very very young uh my parents both went to prison and uh my sister and i went into foster care and um uh, <clears throat> we ended up in a rather abusive foster home that we were hispanic kids and and uh they were white and um i guess uh their thing was we were gonna beat the mexican out of them they were quite they were quite prejudiced physically uh
1: physically abusive had too really...
2: yes yeah with a lot of beatings. And um, and I think my foster mom might've had some emotional issues, but you know, it was tough. It was really tough for my sister and I. Uh, so when I was about uh, 11 years old, 11, 12 years old, I, really, I rebelled, you know, and I started running away, uh, running around with the bad kids, ending up in juvenile hall all the time. And uh, eventually joined a gang and became Really hardcore gang member.
1: So it was that first juvenile hall that you went to, I believe, was where you were first also introduced not only to a gang member, but to the art of tattoos.
2: Yes, that's correct. I was in a holding cell. Uh, they were actually going to release me, you know, back to my foster foster parents. And so they had me in a holding cell by myself. And uh, then they brought this other older kid in. I was only 12. He was maybe 16, 17. And uh, he was this cholo guy, and he had tattoos all over. And I was just obsessed with his tattoos. And he probably would have never, ever given me the time of day. But since we were in the cell together, you know, he talked to me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I asked him how you do it and all that. And he told me, yeah, you get a needle and wrap a thread around it, dip it in India ink, or he said, or a girl's mascara. And uh, so when I got out that night, I I pitched a tent in my bed with a flashlight and got my sister's mascara, and I did my first tattoo on myself. Um, Eventually, I became like, uh, you know, the neighborhood tattoo artist and a graffiti writer because I was born with art ability. My father and my uncles were artists. So that's how my uh, career in tattooing first began.
1: And it seems like much of your early life was in and out of jails and prisons, and at the same time, while you were in there, you were able to develop that skill. Tell us a little bit more about yes. that.
2: Yes, I did. And, and uh, being, you know, uh, once I joined the gang and left the foster home, um, I was completely incorrigible to them. They they were not not going to take me back. So I ended up on the streets and getting uh, in a lot of trouble. So I ended up being institutionalized. You know, I, from uh, from that age of uh, twelve and thirteen until I was got out of youth authority when I was twenty two, probably the longest period of time I would stay out at, at once would be like two months. And uh, but I would always go back and in there, you know, with the, the Chicanos the the <clears throat> art imagery is was very important to us. Um and and um there were a lot of good artists and <clears throat> you know, the images like religious images, you know, of Jesus and Mary or revolutionary type images like Zapata and Pancho Villa and, and uh, the Chara girls, you know, the, that fought in the revolution. And also Aztec imagery, you know, because we thought it was part of our heritage and and we considered ourselves the warriors, you know. So uh that really did give me the time to uh to be a self taught artist, you know, and because all I did was draw in there. And eventually, I ended up in a uh, youth authority in this lockup program for really bad kids called tamarack and uh, in tamarack there there uh because we were so bad, you know their uh attitude towards us was one of leniency. It was like, okay, if you guys don't kill each other, we'll let you tattoo on yourselves, we'll bring you pornography, we won't search yourselves so it was in there that um I learned about the homemade prison machines, and uh, we used to make our uh, little machines out of uh, motors from a tape, a tape player, and I started tattooing with this machine and got really, really good.
1: So can really you good with it. describe that a little bit more, because even after reading about that, it's hard to visualize that.
2: Well, so uh, the, the motor in, in uh, the tape player, is, uh, it, it's uh, like a little round motor but it has a post coming out of it that spins around. And uh, so it's hard to explain, but we would get a, melt a toothbrush, you know, so that it goes in an L shape, and that would be our brace. Tape that around the motor and then put a big pen on top of it. That would be our tube. Uh, get a get a paper, paper clip, and I'll bend it into a long L with a little L at the end, attach it to the post. And uh, as the post went around, it made the paper clip go back and forth, and then we'd attach a guitar string, a sharpened up guitar string, to the tip, and uh, that would be our needle. Huh?:
1: Sounds ingenious. And kind of like a sewing it, machine. It, well, yeah, it's kind of like that, and it's, it, it's uh,
2: you know, a result of prison ingenuity. There's some fascinating things that, that people make in and do in prison you know just uh like i was out of cigarette packs and making elaborate picture frames and crosses things like that you know it's just amazing prison ingenuity is amazing but probably the most significant thing that was ever invented in prison was the uh rotary tattoo machine because today uh most artists use a rotary tattoo machine and that was first developed in prison now, these companies make these really good ones, you know, but it's all based off the same principle.
1: I'll be darned. No, I, I was unaware of that. So, you were in prison off and on then for nine years of, in essence, early years, your formative, he's uh, from age, uh, what'd you say, 13 to 22? Yes. Yeah. So, but in, and, and you had struggled with drugs and drug abuse prior to that. Uh, and you found your passion, in essence, in prison. But when you came out, you went right back to using.
2: Right. How, how did that but, work? Uh, you know, um, mostly though, as a as a teenager, um, you know, the young gang kids, we weren't real big on on the hard drugs like heroin or barbiturates, uh, mainly because we saw we saw the older guys. <clears throat> you know, all the older guys were heroin addicts and it seemed to take them out of the loop of gang activity, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, they would always be hiding because back then, you know, the police could just stop you and look at your arms. And if you had needle marks, you get 90 days in jail. So they were all- always hiding or nodding out. They never wanted to be involved in any gang activity. They would even fraternize with the enemy, you know, over dope deals you know and things like that so uh in my younger teenage years uh, i was really you know ag- against heroin and i thought i would never ever put a needle in my arm and and use it um but we did do other things you know we did a lot of drinking and uh and pcp and and you know um and weed but i remember taking my first shot uh, I was probably 17 or so, and i one of the older guys, you know, but he was a, a really hardcore guy, you know, like he was a scary guy, and and he was uh, our bad influence, you know, and, and he got me and some of the younger homeboys uh, <clears throat> to steal these things and got the money and then said, yeah, you guys are going to try this, you know, and he shot us all up. And I remember uh, all I did was just puke. You know, I was like, oh, why is it? I hate puking. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so my first experience w- with it was uh, was uh, kind of negative, you know? Yeah. Um,
1: so he shot all I of wasn't. you up with heroin. Yes. Yeah.
2: Mm. Wow. We were all kids, you know? Yeah. And he was like an older guy, like late 20s, maybe early 30s. And uh, <clears throat> I used to think, like, the older guys would try to get the younger guys you know, addicted because then they would send them out on missions, you know, to of, of stealing and, you know, hustling for money because back then that was the only way to support your habit. You couldn't hold down a job. You had to steal, you know, to, to support your, your things. So uh, it wasn't until, you know, um, after I became successful uh, with tattooing that I started using heroin seriously.
1: But for a long while, you used it recreationally, didn't you? And I think you referred to that as chipping.
2: Yes, yes. And, and um, you know, it would be... Uh, now, I wasn't the only one. There was a few homies like that. So, um, you know, we would uh, just use it at, like, picnics or weddings or, you know, special events. But I would always end up, you know, if I could, you know make that go for a year or two, you know, but it always ended up like all of a sudden I was doing it every Saturday or every Sunday. And so when I was,
1: in, I'm sorry, let me jump in. So in your mind, you thought, you know, I'm able to handle this. I'm able to get away with chipping, you know, periodic use on special occasions, but it always ended up getting the best of you is what it sounds like. Is that right?
2: Exactly. Exactly. You know, yeah, you think, you know, because, uh, you know, I didn't want to have a Jones, you know. I didn't want to be addicted. I didn't want to have to run out and be using every day. <clears throat> but uh, so you think you can kind of control it, yeah, and do, do it on special occasions. But eventually it's going to get you. It always got me, you know, and, and then I'd end up strung out. And then I'd have to do something about it. And my resolve was always the, the methadone program. I think I went on that program three times.
1: Hmm. and that worked pretty well for you
2: (laughs) uh well yeah but you start to wonder like what you know what's the difference you know so you go you go every morning and uh you get your dose you know you go to the clinic and you get your dose and all throughout the day you know you're you're uh you're high you know the only thing that's different is that you don't you don't uh have the need to go out and steal you can you know technically you can go out and get a job and um you lose contacts with, with all your you know um connections dope connections things like that but <clears throat> it's still the same thing and it wreaks havoc on your health it destroys your liver but
1: methadone does i didn't i didn't realize that okay so so from your perspective Doing methadone uh, to kick the kick heroin addiction um, puts you in a place where you're still high all day long, and you still have the negative consequences physically that you had before of heroin. Perhaps not as severe. Is that about right?
2: Yeah, that's about right. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I think I think it was pretty bad on the health. You know, I've I've uh, seen a lot of people that have been <clears throat> uh, like one of my uncles was on methadone seemingly his whole life, you know, and he dies young, you know, from uh, uh, liver disease and stuff. So it's kind of like this, you know, the way I looked at it was, so the government's saying, okay, you want to get high? We'll give you the drug.
1: (laughs) Wow, I never looked at it that way. Interesting. So you, in all of this, um, you took a break in 1980 and you said, I'm going off the grid, I'm going to quit my career as a tattoo artist, and I'm going to move to Pennsylvania and lead a Christian congregation.
2: Yeah, I, actually I didn't move to Pennsylvania, but I I connected with a uh, a, uh, a church denomination from over there. And I definitely went to Pennsylvania quite a bit, you know, to, to their uh, conventions and things like that. But the church was uh, the Brethren in Christ. It's like a German congregation they're they're like the um the moderate of the Amish, you know, so it's like the Amish is the ultra conservative of course, and then there's the Mennonite and the Mennonite brethren, the river brethren, and then the brethren in Christ they're the most liberal of of that group of uh, brethren churches
1: okay so, and
2: and uh that was a result, and so what happened you know actually at the time, um, you know, I was, uh, tattooing, but I was, uh, strung out and, uh, I was having trouble with my family and my marriage and, you know, and, um, and there was this, uh, evangelical, uh, group, uh, called Victory Outreach. And, um, it was, uh, the, the leader of that group was Sonny Argonzoni. And he, he got saved by, uh, this gang member, uh, Nikki Cruz in New York, who got saved by this, uh, this uh, fundamentalist preacher named David Wilkerson. And, um, and so what they were doing was going into areas, really bad areas, infested with gangs and a lot of drug addiction. And they were preaching Christ, you know, so um, I would be at the tattoo shop and these hardcore gang members because I knew so many of them some of which were killers and some of which yeah, I was in prison with and everything were showing up to my place, you know, to the tattoo shop with Bibles, you know, mm. and uh, talking about, talking about God. And I saw such a big change in these guys, you know, I was like, these guys are, were crazy gangsters, you know, and now they're talking about love and, and God and, you know, their lives have changed, you know, so that kind of impressed me. And then uh, so I went to, to a, a couple services with these guys, and and you know I accepted Christ as my savior, and um, I immediately you know quit using, and then they you know convinced me that tattooing was a sin as well, and I quit tattooing regretfully. Huh. And then um,
1: so can I jump in here? So you quit yeah. using that was cold turkey then, huh, Freddie?
2: Yeah, and and uh, the part that I I felt that there was a type of miracle to it because I didn't really feel any withdrawals, you know, hmm. and it, I had been, I, I got sick before, you know, then when there's no drugs around or something, you know, I knew what it was to get sick.
1: Yeah. And how, how you often know, were but, you using at that point? Do you recall?
2: At that point, every day, oh, two, three times a day. Oh yeah. So Yeah. Probably three times a day. I mean, I had a really pretty good habit going.
1: So you had reason to believe that you would have been going through withdrawal, but for some reason, you know, unbeknownst reason, you had no withdrawal.
2: Right. Yeah. And so naturally, I, I, I felt like uh, that was the hand of God really helping me. Sure. You know. So, and then a lot of it too, because, yeah, you know, uh, uh, of course, you know, heroin addiction is physical, and but. Uh, so much of it is mental as well, you know, it's like, uh, in your mind, it's like, I can't go through this sickness, you know, because all I had to do is just take another shot, you know? So, so in your mind, if you're saying, I'm not going to take another shot, then I think, uh, you know, the effects of the withdrawals would be less. Mm. That's just kind of a theory. Sure. I, I later went through withdrawals that almost killed me. So, <laughs> mm.
1: so how did this phase of your life come to a close.
2: Well, so, um, you know, I, I eventually uh, felt like I wanted to also uh, reach other people, you know, and help uh, gang members and drug addicts. And and um, it was suggested that I go to college because I quit tattooing. So I went to uh, Azusa Pacific uh, to get my degree in biblical literature. and um, And it was there that I met somebody from the Brethren in Christ Church,
1: <clears throat>
2: and um, I was about to graduate, and so I connected with them, and they ordained me as a minister. And then I went back into the streets of LA to establish my church, and I, you know, I, uh, I put a good little church together. It was called the Living Word, you know, and that, in that uh, all my members were ex-gang members and ex-drug addicts, and we were trying to do the thing, but I just couldn't. I couldn't hold it together in myself, you know, uh, uh, you know, maybe with the drugs and things, but I ended up, you know, uh, cheating on my wife and it was a, it was a big mess. And when my marriage fell apart over it, I mean, I tried to redeem myself from it, you know, and be honest about it, but it all fell apart. And, uh, I went back to the neighborhood and and started using again.
1: So wasn't this about the time that, somehow you got connected with the motion pictures?
2: No, well, <clears throat> no, it was a little bit later. When, so, uh, you know, once I uh, I backslid, you know, from, from the church and started getting high with the homies and all that stuff again, I met another girl, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, I tried to get my life together on my own, and I decided to go back into tattooing, and... Um, and since I was a legend in that industry, you know, they accepted me with open arms. And, uh, and then so uh, I got a call from this uh, producer, Taylor Hackford, and he told me, hey, uh, I got your number from a uh, tattoo artist, Kerry Barba, who said that you're the man to talk to uh, about prison tattoos because I'm doing this movie about prison and it was uh, Blood and Blood Out. And I need tattoos, so he hired me for blood and blood out and um i I really helped him in that movie. I developed a little technique to apply temporary tattoos and in the process, I met the makeup artist who invented uh the technique for for tattooing for motion pictures. His name was Freddie Blau, and him and I became partners and uh, I went on to. Work with him for the next 10, 15 years.
1: Thirty movies. So including yeah. Con Air and Blade. I mean, some big names there.
2: Yes. Yeah, there was some really big movies, and it was a it was a changing point for motion pictures because prior to that, there was just there was a, the movie The Illustrated Man, which uh, Freddie Blau created his effects on that movie. And there was another movie called Tattoo with Bruce Dern. But <clears throat> you never saw tattoos in movies, you know. They never needed that effect. And all of a sudden, you know, at that time, you know, they were, as tattooing was getting popular, they needed tattoo effects for their movies, you know. So, so, uh, and that, that that's the 30 features that I worked on. But we also did TV shows and commercials, you know. So I actually did a lot of work with in that industry, you know. And at the same time, I opened up my tattoo shop in Santa Barbara.
1: And meanwhile, you still had this habit. Chipped. You can, I was still chipping. Chipping. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> so um, what happened from there? How did you finally uh, hit rock bottom on that? Because it sounded like, from reading, it, it, it seemed like you went through a couple of different cycles where you had family going and everything else, and then it all fell apart, and... You kind of got it back together, but then, you know, things once again would go back into that cycle. So how how did that all pretty much end to make you turn the corner there, Freddie?
2: Well, you know, that that was the story of my life, you know, like all of a sudden I'd have great successes and great failures. You know, I'd fall hard, you know, another great success and started my life all over and I would fall hard again. And, and uh, <clears throat> the reason for that was my addiction, you know. Of course, I would say, "Oh, well, this happened and that happened. They didn't want to renew my lease, or this and that." But every bad thing, every family breakup, every incarceration, every disaster that ever happened in my life, I could look back and say, "Drugs and alcohol were involved." You know, so uh, so eventually, um, you know, I lost my tattoo shop in Santa Barbara. and uh, ended up coming to, to Hollywood to tattoo here in Hollywood. but And then I was introduced to uh, something new for me, which was speed, you know? <clears throat> and I started doing speed and heroin.
1: So you would mix and it and shoot it? Is that how that worked?
2: Yeah, hmm. exactly. Because the problem with heroin and being a tattoo artist is that if you do too much, you're going to start nodding out in the middle of your tattoo. <laughs> And that doesn't look good, you know, when you're getting a tattoo from somebody and they start nodding out.
1: Sure, I can only imagine.
2: So, uh, and and then, um, you know, uh, you know, I have my two sons: my son from my first marriage, and uh, my son from my second marriage. I even went into a custody battle with him. I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute, but but um, so,
0: <clears throat> what eventually
2: happens in drug addiction, you know, like. You experience all these bad things, mainly, you know, uh, your freedom, you know, incarceration because of the result of it. And um, if it doesn't get you like that, it's going to get your health eventually.
1: Physically. And it it seems as though it it got you both ways, didn't it? Because you had congestive heart failure.
2: Yes. And that's what, in uh, 2004, I was diagnosed with uh, congestive heart failure, and they called it, they labeled it drug-induced congestive heart failure you know, because I got really, really sick. I remember I didn't want to go to the hospital. I mean, but I didn't know what it was. I couldn't breathe, you know, and I couldn't, I couldn't walk. And all of a sudden, my ankles and legs swelled up and everything. So eventually I had to go to the hospital, but I was still using, you know, the whole time. And, uh, you know, they diagnosed me with congestive heart failure. So I stopped using for a while and, you know, went on the medication that they gave me because it made me feel a lot better, you know, like. Uh, all of a sudden I could breathe better, you know, and um, the swelling in my ankles, all that stuff went down, but it wasn't long before I started using again and stopped using the the meds that they they gave me.
1: This concludes part one of our two-part series with Freddie Negretti, world-renowned tattoo artist and major motion picture tattoo artist. Next time, we'll hear how Freddie turned his life around after more than 40 years of substance abuse, crime, and debauchery. This is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover Two Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover Two PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover Two Resources podcast.